Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Lisa Johnson, in for Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? Summer used to be my favorite. In Vancouver, it got warm enough to jump in the ocean. We'd trade gray rain clouds for blue skies. Now, there are parts of the season that bring dread. This year, hazy skies from wildfires, a level of heat even forecasters found hard to believe... And across the country, both flooding and extreme drought. No question, what's normal is changing. And now it's possible we won't just be grieving how summer used to be, but the idea of normal at all. Today on What on Earth, how to turn that sweat and dread into action. We start with you and some of your experiences of this summer so far. So many things are so tinder dry, so if there's any kind of lightning, things are sparking on and causing huge fires of concern. I just got back from a bike ride, and in the woods, there's like, some of the native plants are dying. Like, there's tons of ferns that are just, swaths of ferns that are just dead, you know, and I've been riding that same spot for 15 years, 20 years. I've never seen that. Sometimes after a frost, you'll get it, but, you know, not in the summer. There was just a really strong smell And we really had no idea at the time what that was. And then UBC has now pretty much estimated that that was the smell of death. You know, mussels, clams, starfish, um, just incredibly shocking that those organisms had no way, you know, to escape the heat. Basically, our growing season is done. We had no subsoil moisture to start with, so this has really been a tough, tough time. To have that kind of heat in June was unprecedented. The way I look at this current drought is it's like a bank account. We are overdrawn. I got to tell you that uh, we are having record level flooding in uh, the Southern Lakes region of the Yukon, which is unprecedented flooding. We had a massive heat for two weeks of 30 degrees and uh, it let loose. We've got everybody who's on a water frontage is, is flooding. There's a whole bunch of flags going up that we are in a a climate crisis. Anyone who doesn't believe that really needs to uh, shake their head. I think the main word is fear and anxiety, I guess. You know, I'm living in Cristobal. We're not far from Castlegar, so we had the fire just outside of Castlegar, and we're lucky enough that it didn't actually come all the way into town, but it was right on the outside of town, three, four blocks out of the main drag. It's freaky. The intensity of the storms around here have just been incredible. I've never seen winds. Um, I've lived in Kitchener since 1979, and I've never seen winds to the effect that it's like here. You know, you hear of extreme weather happening in different areas of Canada, but when you're seeing trees coming down all over the place, power outages in early June, and, um, and if that's not an indication of climate change, I don't know what is. It's here now. If we zoom in on the late June heat wave, it was so extreme, such an outlier, that when an international team of scientists tried to analyze the role that climate change played, at first they couldn't do it. 
So we followed, tried to follow the protocol, and we immediately ran into a big problem. That's Hert-Jan van Oldenburg, a climate researcher in the Netherlands and part of the World Weather Attribution Group. That's a SWAT team of scientists that jumps in after extreme weather hits and uses tested methods to look at whether climate change has made the event more likely, and by how much. But this time, even factoring in the warmer world of 2021, the heat was so out of line with anything seen before, their statistical modeling couldn't make sense of it. So our standard method of analyzation didn't work because it, and not only was the probability zero in the climate of the 19th century, so it was impossible without climate change, it was actually impossible with climate change as well, which is obviously wrong because it occurred. To adjust, they included the heat wave in the data and got results. Here's Sarah Q from the Royal Netherlands Meteorological Institute. That basically, without climate change, this event would not have happened. Climate change made the temperatures observed at least 150 times more likely. And even with the 1.2 degrees of warming that's happened globally so far, the heat wave was calculated to be a very rare event, on the order of once in a millennium. So then why did it happen now? There are two possibilities to explain how you can get an event that you would have judged impossible last year. The first possibility? Improbable stuff does happen. And this was bad luck. It could have been that the people in this region were just extremely unlucky that the improbable event of the year or of the decade or, or decades, actually, happened to be right on, on top of their head and hit them. The researchers still plan to investigate that. The other possibility is a bit scarier. Maybe we've already passed a tipping point. The second possibility is that we could be past the threshold that made these kind of heat waves suddenly much more likely. So that climate change is not a gradual increase proportional to the global mean temperature, but there's, there's jumps in it that really make this kind of heat more likely once you pass a certain threshold. <sighs> Even without that, if we don't curb emissions and the planet reaches two degrees of warming, the World Weather Attribution Group estimates this deadly one in a thousand year event could start to happen every five or 10 years. And I think this is really what all these attribution studies together show us that for heat waves, climate change is an absolute game changer. So heat waves are increasing in likelihood by orders of magnitude more than any other type of extreme event. This is really heat waves is how climate change kills us today. Even before the recent heat wave, what's normal in a Canadian summer has been quietly changing for decades. Let's go back to the 1930s, when the modern practice of tracking what's officially normal for a climate got started. The main purpose at the time was agriculture. That's Chris Harper, a professor at the University of Copenhagen, studying the history and philosophy of earth sciences. To set the stage by the 1930s, weather data did exist, but it moved slowly. There were in the U.S. thousands of weather stations. The biggest ones had meteorologists and sent information by telegraph. But most were staffed by volunteers with handwritten logs. And so most of the data that was coming in from these far-flung stations was all just written down and then mailed in at the end of the month. It could take a decade for a single year of weather data to get published. Meanwhile, demand was growing for better long-range information. Farmers wondering about first and last frost, construction companies with building deadlines, and insurance companies looking to set premiums on weather-related coverage. 
So baseball teams used to get insurance, basically weather insurance, because if they had a whole bunch of baseball games that were that were rained out, then they lost money. In 1935, the International Meteorological Organization met in Warsaw and came up with a plan for what were called, quote, climatological standard normals. They'd use 30 years of weather data to track and compare climates, starting with January 1st, 1901 to December 31st, 1930, and updated after that. All these nations were facing the same challenges with with people calling into their national weather services. on a daily basis or and i've seen some descriptions where there were literally hundreds of people calling in every day wanting to know what the weather forecast was going to be was it okay to plant for is it going to be a good year to put in strawberries i mean whatever it was and this way they would actually have some data that they could use that 30-year practice is still in effect the u.s just updated its climate normals to capture 1991 to 2020 and Environment Canada is working on doing the same. So when you hear the weather is so many degrees above normal, it's not the normal my parents or even I was born in, but this newer, changing normal. Already, the data we have show the fingerprints of burning fossil fuels. On average, since 1948, Canadian summers are warmer by 1.5 degrees. As the averages march up, so do extremes. More hot nights, more hot days, and more dangerous heat waves. Yeah, this was pretty well one of the toughest experiences that I've had recently in terms of my career in weather forecasting. Meteorologist Brett Soderholm was forecasting for the BC Wildfire Service in Prince George when the June heat wave hit. On a typical day, the climate normals are a useful tool, as he calls it a sanity check for the accuracy of a forecast. Meteorologists are able to go back and use climatological data and say, hey, you know what, on this day, on average, over the past 30 years, the temperature in this given city was X. That allows us to see if, historically speaking, the forecast that we're about to produce for the next couple of days is actually in line with things that have happened in the past. It's his job to give a weather outlook for a huge region of BC and spot forecasts for wildfires to keep firefighters on the ground safe. So the stakes are high for getting it right. But putting his forecast together during the heat wave, the climate normal data became meaningless. I wasn't able to even look at it and perform my normal sanity check, as I called it. We're talking about truly temperatures that would be 20 degrees above what the normal would be for that time of year. The forecast felt surreal and one he hopes he won't repeat too many times this fire season. As I am typing down the numbers four and zero to say the high for Prince George is going to be 40 degrees, as soon as I hit enter on that, I had to step away. I I quite literally put my hands through my hair and just shook my head and said, I really, really hope I'm wrong. I didn't want to be right. That's that's just too hot for anyone up here. The Prince George Airport broke its all-time record hitting 37.9, and at the closest wildfire weather station south of the city, it did hit 40.6. A temperature never recorded there before. It makes me wonder, beyond the official 30-year calculations, how to make sense of normal in a changing climate. Soderholm points to the last four years of fire in B.C., two historically bad, followed by two very quiet. None of them normal. Normal is going to be an increasingly difficult concept for us to wrap our heads around. Looking ahead to the future, I think we're just going to only be able to use normal as a reference point to how extreme we are from one side to the next.
what seems normal varies by where you live. We're having almost daily thunderstorm in our region. Sometimes it's very heavy and then it just uh, disappears and then it gets back to our normal hot and humid temperatures around this time of the year. That's Dr. Wajid Ahmed. He's the medical officer of health for the Windsor-Essex County Health Unit. And what's normal for Windsor has changed over the years. Canada's most southern city feels more heat more often with more nights not cooling off. The Climate Atlas of Canada says it could see the number of hot days triple by the end of this century. We reached Dr. Ahmed in Windsor. Hello, Lisa. What changes has Windsor seen in recent years when it comes to heat-related visits to the ER? So we are seeing a steady increase in the number of heat-related emergency department visits uh, in our region. As an overall average temperature, we are seeing an increase, and that has also been a concern from the climate change perspective and the forecast that we are expected to see that is expected to increase even more in the coming years. So you're already seeing an increase and then preparing for more. How closely tied are those um, the ER visits that you are seeing uh, tied to the record heat days when they come? Overall, we see a correlation when we see the heat days, and then we, we also see individuals showing up in the emergency department as well. We are seeing a steady increase and in the correlation between those heat-related events and then the uh, ER visits. They are presenting with uh, some signs and symptoms of uh, either heat exhaustion or heat stroke when their body temperature really gets high and uh, start to show some symptoms which can be dangerous for them. One of the ways that uh, Windsor's weather has been documented to change is, is getting hotter at night, like more nights each summer that it isn't cooling down. Why does that matter so much from a health perspective when we don't get a break at night? There is certain ability from the body that, uh, you know, we can only work well when it comes in small episode with the chance of body to recuperate and then uh, re-energize before they're experiencing the same heat wave. When the temperatures are not falling at nighttime as well, and if it continues to stay elevated, it definitely puts more stress on the body to try to cool the body down to maintain that core temperature that is uh, essential for the normal functioning of the human being. Hmm. I think it's interesting uh, looking at the warning system you have in place now, that duration of heat, that chance for the body to get a break from it seems to be a really key piece of it. And five years ago, your health unit changed the way it communicates the level of risk associated with extreme heat and heat waves. What prompted that change? Our region is probably by far the the region that sees more of the extreme temperatures. We started to notice some of these um, emergency department visits increasing in our community as a result of these heat waves. So it helped to revamp the system to be more proactive, to come up with better messaging, better campaign to create that awareness in the community about the heat, about heat related illness. And uh, it all as a result of uh, seeing the impact at the population level. And we hope that uh, we have done a better job in, in creating that awareness. So we are we still have a lot of work to do. And I think people just need constant reminder because temperature fluctuates quite readily and we need to be prepared for that. Sometimes I wonder if we're not great um, in Canada at taking heat seriously. Was that one of the challenges in terms of communicating the risk to people that you know that if it's too cold, that could really hurt you, but too hot might be something just to suffer through? 
Yeah, you, you have got a good, good point. And I think maybe that's the perception from people that uh, I think we are too used to seeing the colder temperature and be prepared for it. But when it comes to warmer temperature, maybe we like to see some warm temperatures <laughs> who, who won't. Right. But I think the, the balance is what kind of temperature can impact your health? We are getting to the point that we need to remind people that in addition to the extreme cold weather, there are some regions who may experience extreme heat related events as well. So it is a shift in people's mind. Not everyone takes uh, heat seriously as they should. Since you changed the warning system uh, in 2016, have you seen any impact in how people respond to the warnings? People are taking some of these warnings seriously. These warning signals, if you're sending it out too much, then it just reduces the impact. So we're just finding the right mm. balance of how we are getting the message that is more meaningful and it is engaging the community in following the recommendations and taking their precautions. When you look to the future and the more hot days and warm nights that Windsor is expected to be experiencing, what do you see being possible to help people stay safe when, when it just isn't cooling down? Many of our homes in Windsor, Essex, uh, do not have the air conditioners because of uh, the perception that we live in Canada and uh, we don't get too hot that we need the air conditioning. But that is changing. Having access to more of these public spaces, if they cannot afford to or if they don't have access to the air conditioning, to access those public spaces where they can cool down. We need more hydration station. We need lots of green spaces where people can go to help cool down, stay in the shade while they're still enjoying the warmer temperature. We've been talking a lot about the health impacts on individuals in terms of the healthcare system, when extreme heat happens, when those ER visits go up, what kind of a toll does that take on what's available locally and, and how the system's coping? Well, it does take a toll because any kind of a surge in the emergency department visit, it adds more pressure to the system. So everything that we are doing from a promotion perspective, it's to prevent that from happening. But when it does happen, it does take away some of the critical resources that could go otherwise to support some other uh, medical emergencies that are not preventable. It sounds like Windsor is doing quite a lot to adapt to what's coming. How prepared are you for a warmer climate future? This is one of those issues that is uh, beyond uh, any single person control or single agency's control. It does uh, require preparation from not only individually, but as a collective system to, to prevent uh, some of these heat-related impacts in communities like ours. So we are doing what we can, but I think it needs to register at different levels of government to provide the right support locally. Some of our municipalities have already declared the climate emergency, and that helps to start thinking about what needs to be done to try and mitigate the impacts of climate change. Dr. Ahmed, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Lisa. It's a pleasure to be here. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on. Which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. 
My name is Dan Tate. I'm a musician and entrepreneur in Kelowna, BC. I work outside as a window cleaner and it's really difficult to work in the heat. Uh, with this heat wave we had a couple weeks ago, it it is oppressive. It's as soon as I get out of the safety of the shade of my house, it's exhausting. It takes five minutes of activity and you know, you get that feeling where your your joints are starting to slow and your arms are starting to drag and your feet don't move as fast. And to work in that or to live in that or to play in that is is oppressive and difficult. I feel like we've all been watching this cycle of heat waves, major floods, hurricanes, whatever it might be. It's an acute event that seems to catalyze a really fast but short interest in doing something about climate change. And what I'm really worried about is how that never seems to carry over, you know, when times get better, or when we get to winter. And I find it really concerning because this is, uh, I've watched it steadily grow worse through my lifetime. Suzanne Moser studies climate change adaptation and what it takes to make people act. She's an independent consultant based in Massachusetts, and that's where we've reached her. Suzanne, hello. Hi, it's wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me. So when the heat wave and then wildfires hit here in Canada, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about climate change and the idea that, oh, if this doesn't prompt action, what will? What do you think of that? Yeah, I think we hope for that every single one of these disasters, don't we? <laughs> I I hope it's true. I wish it were true. I'm I've been in this business now long enough, some 25 years, and I've seen so many disasters come and go and every single one of them you know, they called unprecedented or or had some other uh, superlatives attached to it. And every time we thought it should make people act. And, you know, people are really motivated to act in that moment. And then life takes over and they just go back to business as usual when it's no longer as acute as it is right now. Hmm. So how to change that? Um, we've heard listeners asking us, how do you continue the conversation past the acute event? What can be done? Yeah, it's it's a great question. And, you know, it, it, to me, it feels like there is not sort of the one magic bullet that I can just give you and, and that will make it all turn. I think it's, you know, certainly the fact that we're having these events more and more frequently, um, that we are having them in many more places around the, the world it's beginning to form a picture in people's mind that whoa this is strange this is this is not the occasional you know run of the mill disaster anymore so people are beginning to get this sense that something really is wrong and something really big ought to be done hmm. so we used to hear how distance was a reason more wasn't being done on climate change like sure it's a problem but for the future or for someone else do we know if direct experience changes that yeah, that's another really interesting question. And, and there's a bit of a paradox there. You know, sometimes when we hear of an event or a disaster or climate impacts on, you know, distant areas from us, right, that are geographically distant or happen sometime in the future or happen to someone else, to another species, we can actually allow ourselves to be more worried about that. Strangely enough, when it comes really close in, we become incredibly defensive um, and self-protective. There's a persistent finding in perception studies that basically shows that people are more worried about the things that are further away than about the things really close in. 
what's what's interesting of course is that you know we, we wonder whether having this repeated direct experience does that change people's opinion and i um again the you know people are experiencing changes they feel it they can sense it even if they don't know the exact science or or data behind it um and it is giving them that creepy feeling that mm, this is not right <laughs> so that is beginning to happen when you talk about people feeling like it's hard to cope with when it comes close, it kind of reminds me of times here uh, in BC when the wildfire smoke has closed in as it has at times this week. You know, I feel a desire to flee, like literally I want to get away from the smoke. But is there a danger that we are sort of mentally trying to flee that reality if it becomes too enormous? You know, I think humans have this interesting response to a threat. There's sort of two ways people go about it. Either they experience the threat or they see the, the threat and they know what to do and they do something to reduce it. Or if they don't know what to do, to reduce the feeling about it, the, the, the perception of it, the you know sense of threat. So that's when we go into denial. But it's very difficult for humans to stand in the face of a threat, not know what to do and not run away, not not want to flee it in some way. So we do that mentally if we can't really get away physically. And of course, with mm. global climate change, it is happening everywhere. Where are you going to go? You know, it, this is the planet we have. So what are some of those actions that people could be taking and feel empowered to do? Yeah, I think at this point, you know, when, when people say, oh, just go and change the light bulbs or do something, drive less, these sort of personal actions um, that anyone could take, they are good for many, many reasons um, and and send important social signals, but they're not the things that will make the really big difference uh, in terms of global emissions and really, you know, turning down the thermostat, if you will, on the planet. So what we really need there is political pressure. We need pressure on the politicians who can set in motion policies like, you know, getting our energy from renewable sources versus fossil fuel sources that basically have a much bigger impact, right? So political action is really how you vote, who you elect into office um, at every level, who you buy your, your products from. Are you supporting businesses, as a consumer that continue to do unsustainable practices, those are the kinds of things that matter. I wonder about the role, what about peer pressure in in any of this? And the you're talking about the very big conversations um, with the political leaders that have power to do something about it. But what about the smaller conversations we have in our lives? What role can they play? Yeah, I like to actually think of this more as peer support <laughs> in many ways. Fair um, enough. Yeah, you know, there's study after study here in the U.S. done that shows that we still don't hear enough from the people we trust most. And that is our family members, our closest peers, our friends, maybe even our bosses. We don't have these conversations. So one really big change that we can all make is actually raising that conversation. And maybe it's uncomfortable sometimes. Maybe some people don't you know, feel it's a downer conversation. They don't want to hear it. Have the conversation about what you want and what you together can do, what everyone can do, right? We have those conversations and that's what creates a cer certain social norms. Just like looking through your neighborhood, do people have recycle bins on the street on, on trash day? 
that sets a social norm. Everybody does it. Well, I should probably do it too. Those kind of social signals are absolutely essential. Our most influential thing on, on who we are and how we behave is other people. Now, you have been studying and talking about climate change for a long time. I'm curious how that translates for you personally or like plays out in, in your life and your conversations. Yeah, well, I do have these conversations with a lot of my friends and colleagues and, and family. It is very present. I've made many choices in my own personal life where I you know, invest for my retirement or whether or not I drive a car, what car I drive, how much I fly. Am I a perfect human being and make all the right choices? Absolutely not, because I live in systems that make it really difficult. But I I tried as hard as I can to to make those kinds of choices. And in terms of my own personal perception of it, I've gone through waves and waves of grief over what we're doing to the planet, to future generations, what opportunities we take away from the next generation, the species we are, we are killing off as if it doesn't matter. Really, we're sitting on a on a branch and we're sewing it off as we speak. And it is heartbreaking to me. So it's directed a lot of my work to, you know, the, to the question of communication and to the question of how do we emotionally deal with what we know and what we know is coming. I see it in growing really among many people now, this really big sense of dread and fear and anxiety about what might happen. And there's no place we offer publicly, no cultural holding of that morning that we really need to go through and then to turn that into action. I, I don't think it is enough to just, if you will, wallow in our feelings. Um, I think we need to have them because if we don't, we go numb and that's not very helpful, but we need to have them, feel them validated and then turn them into practical action from any place where you can make that difference in your personal life, professional life, and politically. Suzanne Moser, it's not an easy topic to let our brains dwell on, but I thank you for joining us. Well, it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having a conversation. It's really critical, and you are changing the norm. So thank you. The last word today goes to Shane Gunster. He studies and teaches courses on communication around climate change at Simon Fraser University. I first came across the use of the term the new normal when I was looking at how media cover uh, wildfire coverage. And so it was actually the title of a report. Not the wildfires you're hearing about this year, but the ones that burned through BC in 2017. And at the time, I saw experts use the phrase, politicians use the phrase, and I think their intentions were well-meaning in the sense that they were using the phrase to try and communicate to the public that climate change was here, uh, climate change was now, climate change was having urgent effects. I worry, though, about the use of the phrase the new normal because of the accent on normal. And if you think about normal, well, what do we do with things that are defined as normal? We adjust to them. We get used to them. Uh, in many cases, we come to accept them. And so I worry about that framing of climate change in the sense that it shifts our focus onto adaptation, uh, which we certainly will have to do, but detracts from mitigation. 
I personally think the crisis and emergency framing is, is far preferable. Think about how different our response is to something when it's defined as a crisis or as an emergency. When something is defined as an emergency and experienced as an emergency, it rises to the top of your priority. If you think of the Great Depression, uh, it wasn't framed as the normal, uh, as a new normal, something you had to get used to. It was a crisis, and it was a crisis that demanded governments mobilize all of the resources of society to address. Less than half of all Canadians actually have a good understanding that the key driver of climate change is fossil fuel use. And so for me, what this speaks to is the importance of continuing to draw connections, not just between extreme weather and climate change, but extreme weather, climate change, and fossil fuel use. That third part is so important in media coverage and to make that connection consistently, that it is fossil fuel use that is driving climate change, that is uh, increasing the frequency and severity of extreme weather. And the second part of that, uh, climate literacy, is having a realistic understanding of how Canada, our country, is doing relative to other countries. If you actually look at the data on emissions, Canada has the worst record of all G7 countries, worse than the United States. And so I think that's a really, really important message for media to get through so that when we see our prime minister talk about the importance of fighting climate change, uh, people can say, okay, if you think it's so important, why are you continuing to pour subsidies into the fossil fuel industry? Why are our emissions continuing to go up? We'd love to hear from you about this. It's possible an election is on the horizon. How important is climate change when you cast a vote? Email us earth at cbc.ca or send us a voice memo. Thanks this week to the team. Associate producer Amanda Buckowitz, producer Molly Siegel. Matthias Wolfson is our engineer. Our senior producer is Manisha Janakaram. I'm Lisa Johnson, in for Laura Lynch. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.